Hello there and welcome to another episode of Extraordinary, the podcast about standing out and making a difference in a world where being ordinary is a losing formula. This is where we come to you with ideas, inspiration, frameworks, and most of all, world-class guests, all to help you build an extraordinary brand and business for yourself or for your company. My name is Tobias Dahlberg. I'm the founder and CEO of Wondering. And in this episode, I have a real treat for you entrepreneurs out there, you freelancers, consultants, account people at agencies and business owners who want to learn how to sell your creative services. With me today, I have Blair Enns from Win Without Pitching, which is a sales training company for creative agencies and professionals. You can find Blair and his company at BlairEnns.com or WinWithoutPitching.com. Blair is the author of two fantastic books, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. So this is one of those episodes that I think will positively impact many of you listeners out there. And for some, it might even be the breakthrough that you are looking for. I know for uh, myself, I first discovered Blair about a year ago, and I immediately took some of his teaching to heart, and I continue to implement his ideas as we speak. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, I'd love to hear your comments, and I'd love to engage with you. And if you find this valuable, please share this episode with someone you think needs to hear it, and subscribe, and leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That means the world to me. So thank you very much, and welcome, and here's the episode with Blair. Okay, so today I'm joined by Blair Enns, who calls himself a recovering consultant. Welcome to the podcast, Blair. Thank you, Tobias. Happy to be here. Well, this one is a special treat for me because uh, I've done a lot of interviews with a lot of different authors, and uh, this is something that touches me on a very personal level. So I, first of all, I... I uh, I have to credit Brian Soy, who I believe is a, is a mutual friend who was on the show, and he uh, recommended your book, It Win Without Pitching, and uh, he did not only kind of recommended it to me, I think he, he said it in a way that made me really feel that I need to read this book, and I, I, I'm a big reader, so I, I instantly downloaded it, and I read it in one sitting, and I, I don't know if I can describe what I felt like. I felt... On one hand, like despair, and like someone had just hit me with a <laughs> with a with a wet cloth, and I uh, felt like I maybe lost some years of my life, and and the other part of me felt like this incredible joy and and inspiration uh, for what you know for things I could do in the future. It was really a game changer to read it, and uh, what I loved about it, I mean, it's uh, for for the people that for the readers that uh, sorry for the listeners that. Maybe haven't read it. I mean, it's it's a, written in a form of a manifesto where you have twelve proclamations. Can you please explain a little bit about you know what what those what the book is all about and why you wrote it? Yeah, and first I'll just say about Brian. So I'm. It's no surprise he encouraged you to read it. He designed it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, so the 12 proclamations or the 12 chapters, the 12 kind of statements. I guess in the end I ended up I didn't intend to write a 12-step program for creative entrepreneurs, but that's essentially what I did. Um and the 12 proclamations are the proclamations of a win without pitching agency or creative firm. 
And so it's the things that we will do differently to take back control in the buy-sell relationship and, and regain some power in the relationship to, uh, relationships that we have with clients. Yeah. And I, um, it's called the, the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. It was published in July of 2010, so we're into the eighth year now. And I was just looking at sales yesterday. Sales are up um, 82% over last year. This is wow. in year eight. Last year, they were up 74% over the year before. So yeah. the longer the book is out there um the the more like it feels like we're just getting started so it was meant to be a niche a little niche book that would be read by designers and i wrote it to be in language that felt timeless and mm. brian designed it in a manner that makes it look timeless so i wanted to i wanted it to honestly i wanted the book to outlast me um but as a niche book it's approaching 25,000 copies sold and 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 gaining momentum quickly. So I do expect it will, I do expect it will outlive me. I'm still a fairly young man. But that's, <laughs> that's what I, that's, that was my kind of wildest dream when I wrote it. I knew it was a niche book, but I thought it had staying power and I thought it would last. And there's something about, I've always, I love manifestos. I've always wanted to write a manifesto, but at the same time, I felt a little bit concerned about kind of the genre. In fact, I met, uh, about a year after it came out, I met Stephen Pressfield, who's written mm. over 100 books on graphic design. And I, I said, oh, Mr. Pressfield, I've always wanted to meet you here. I'd like to give you a copy of my new book. And he looked at the title and he said, hmm, I've just written an article on why the world doesn't need another manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I can identify with that. There's something about... There's something compelling to me about manifestos, and I wanted to write one, but at the same time, I cringe a little bit and wonder, does the world really need another manifesto? Mm. Um, but I'm, I, there's nothing about the book eight years later that I would change. There's zero, nothing about it yeah. that I would change. And I think that's, that's pretty rare for an author to be able to say yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels very timeless. And I think as an agency owner and founder, I think the manifesto is very kind of suitable for me because manifestos suggest that you've been really angry or upset with something. And I think a lot of agency owners and founders can definitely relate to that feeling. Like when you open the first, you know, you read through the first proclamation, which I, if I remember correctly, is we shall specialize. Is that what it is? Yes. And, uh, yeah. and like, so you, you go right into it and you start of feeling like, I don't know. I, I, when I read it, I kind of started feeling like, shit, this is so true. And I become almost angry with myself. For, and that's what I meant by saying that it kind of <laughs> made me feel both despair and joy at the same time. And so maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit through, like uh, when we, while we were at that first proclamation, uh, like give us a sample of, of what some of the thinking was that went into it. And, and where do people come into this? Like what is the problem behind it, which we, I think we should talk about? Yeah, so the the problem in the creative professions is the universal problem that I've kind of devoted my career to helping solve is a lack of power in the buy-sell relationship. The fact that when a an agency, whether it's design, advertising, or any of the other creative professions, is standing in front of the client and they're talking about whether or not they should do business together, it is the client that has all the power in the relationship. So if I'm speaking to an audience of agency owners or designers, I'll say, okay, in that scenario, who has the power? And everybody says, the client has the power. And then I say, what is the source of the client's power? And the answer is almost always, the first answer I 
here is almost always money. The client has the power because they have the money. And I respond that, no, that's not the source of the client's power. If the client had a problem and they had all the money in the world and they could not find somebody to help them solve their problem, then their money is useless. The client's power in the buy-sell relationship, their power to kind of push you around, to dictate to you how your services will be bought and sold, to impose pricing on you, etc., that power comes from the availability of substitutes. Mm -hmm. The fact that if you don't, as we say in North America, play ball, if you mm -hmm. don't cooperate with their arduous, often ridiculous selection process, if you don't take their pricing terms, etc., that's okay to them because there are four or five or 45 or 4,500 other firms just like yours in their mind who will. So they have the power because they have essentially the buying power in the marketplace. There are, there's an oversupply of sellers. Mm -hmm. So how do you shift the power back to the agency side? Well, you reduce, you eliminate or um, reduce or outright eliminate competitors. In a creative profession or in a creative firm, how do you eliminate competitors? There's really only one valid basis for the positioning of your firm, and that is deep expertise. How do you create a deeper expertise than your competitor? You narrow your focus. You quit solving all types of problems mm -hmm. for all types of businesses, and you build specialized expertise. And the crux of this, the why this is the first proclamation in the book and why it's a universal problem among creative, uh, creative firms is it is not in the nature of the creative personality to want to specialize. That is the crux of the problem. And that is why so many creative firms have so very little power in the sale. And they feel weak and vulnerable because they've built a business that allows them to get their personal need for variety met. So creativity mm -hmm. is the ability to see. It's not the ability to write or draw. That's the, um, I won't go down that road, but there's, there's another way of thinking about what, what's sometimes known as personal creativity. Mm -hmm. But creativity mm -hmm. is the ability to bring perspective yeah. to a problem. And so if that's your strength, the, the ability to see things differently from everybody else, then you will be drawn to the problem that you have not previously solved. If your strength is looking at pr the problem differently, then you are always going to be in search of a new problem that you haven't previously solved, so you can think about it differently. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what you want, you want personally, but your business needs you to focus. So you have this conflict. The personal need of the creator is to go in search of new and different problems versus the business's need to specialize and build specialized expertise so they can set their self, the, the firm up apart from its competitors and they can reclaim some of the power back from the client in the buy-sell relationship. And once they do that, then everything changes. So mm. that's why we will specialize is the first proclamation. Awesome. So it sounds like it's like brand 101. It's like a commoditization issue, basically, kind of almost paradoxically. Like if you're, you're in a the creative business which kind of suggests that you are you know doing different things but at the same time you're actually very much like everyone else is that true yeah um 
it is brand 101 in some ways and we can think about you can think about your agency as a brand i don't think that's a good idea for reasons we could get into but it but the the basic lessons of business and economics mm-hmm. Um, and supply and demand, and economists are kind of guilty of overstating the laws of supply and demand, but the, there are some fundamentals there that apply, Yeah. and that if there's an oversupply of, uh, if there's an oversupply, then, you know, the person on the, on the buying side has all the power in the relationship, and when those things are s- switched, when there's more demand than there is supply for the specialized expertise that you possess, then you have all the power. Right, so... So you're not a big fan of the 360 kind of a full service agency model unless you're like very big, I guess. Yeah. So I kind of grew up professionally in Canada in a, the first agency I worked for was a full service uh, um, marketing communication firm. So it was, uh, it did advertising, design, public relations, media buying um, for for for-profit businesses non-profits and government agencies so we did everything everything for everybody and you know so that 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 term full service the only people who use that term full service are are uh, small firms trying to look large Mm. and it's it used to be the it used to be the it used to when I started out I've been doing I've been advising creative firms for almost 20 years now maybe 18 years and when I started out, it was I just railed against the term full service because it was everywhere. You don't actually see it much anymore. I don't know mm-hmm. about it in the Nordics, but over in North America, you people would would uh, I think that term has been quite quite rightly the light has been shone on that term, and it's been beaten up so badly that you don't see it very much anymore. Mm. So maybe if we we you mentioned your past. So if we stay, take a couple of steps back, so what got you into? To doing this in the first place. I mean, you came from advertising, if I remember correctly. I mean, not you came from yep. from a, a full service marketing agency, I should say. Yeah. So it was it was um, it was advertising. Um, I tried originally in in that first agency to get a job in their PR division. I say division. There was only 22 people in the firm, so the idea that it would have these divisions is a little bit silly. But I yeah. I applied for a job. Um, uh, doing public relations. They bought an ad agency, a small ad agency, and then hired me there. Um, so I did that for a number of years. So I grew up professionally kind of in, in advertising, thinking I was going into PR, ended up in advertising, and then at some point after a few years, ended up more on the design side. So I've had a chance to work um, in in my career, in my pre-consulting, pre-training company CEO days, I've worked equally in advertising and design. And I'm really struck by the difference in those two creative professions. They're actually quite different from mm. each other. The mentality of a designer is quite different than the mentality of an advertising professional. Very different, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, in the second half of the, that part of my career, I grew very fond of designers. And I, you know, we work with advertising and marketing and digital professionals as well but there's something about i'm not a designer but there's something about designers i'm really drawn to i'm fond of saying a designer wants to solve the problem um and save the world Mm -hmm. and um and and an advertising professional wants to tell a story now i don't mean to diminish i don't mean to suggest that a and a designer's goals are loftier 
but they probably are. There's something about uh, designers as professionals see what they do. They see a higher calling, mm. right? Mm. They're working um, longer term not, as well, I think. Yeah, so. yeah, I think so too. Um, and I might just be a little bit tired of the storytelling, the language you, you hear. It's the language you hear a lot. We're in the storytelling business, and it's not. It's not untrue. It's actually um, quite accurate language to describe what a lot of marketing firms and ad agencies do is tell is tell stories. It's just a, it's another set of language that seems to be overused mm. right now. So how do you back to the specialization part? Like, how should agencies or, or entrepreneurs or agency founders how should they go about finding their specialized like the specialization how do you help them with that like the whole yeah so when without pitching used to be a uh, a new business development consultancy where it was just me and then in the beginning of 2013 i decided to i wanted to scale up mm. um so i transitioned into a training company so now we have a coaching staff and a larger team oh, hence the recovering um, and we consultant yeah <laughs> hence the rec- recovering consultant yeah. i wrote a three thousand word blog post in 2012 um and the title was confessions of a recovering consultant my business model tried to kill me so i killed it first <laughs> uh and if i were at that if i had the same challenges today that i did back then i might not have chosen to switch to a training company model not that i regret it i just think i made i was faced with what i felt was a crisis around my business model i felt like i had maxed mm-hmm. it out so i decided to kind of pivot to a different model um and i don't know i think i would look at those problems differently today and i don't know that i would make the same pivot but i don't i have no regrets for it um but yeah so back to your question about how do we help companies with that we're primarily a sales training organization so when people come to us they want to learn how to win without pitching mm. they want to learn how to reclaim the power in the buy sell relationship and then what do you do in certain situations how do you get out of the unnecessary proposal writing business um how do you get away from get out of having to pitch your ideas for free so we teach all that in what we kind of internally call our sales training curriculum mm. but we also have an we have curriculum around positioning the firm. So um, there are a few different ways that you can come up positioning the firm. The first exercise that if people are listening to this thinking, yeah, I want to explore whether or not my firm is properly positioned. The first exercise I would give you is to say, um, fill in these two blanks, uh, X for Y. So just we, we, we have them write it out. And like, just imagine two boxes on an otherwise blank piece of paper. And in the first box, I want you to write your X. And in the second box, I want you to write your Y. And X is discipline. So what is it that you do? And Y is market. For whom do you do it? And you can write it out the way you kind of current, the way you're currently positioned or the way you currently think about your business. And then just ask yourself, well, how many other firms also do X for Y? What do we know about doing x for y that other firms don't know and so you can ask these questions about you know how powerful is this positioning now and then you can do the exercise in a more aspirational way and you you start to imagine well what if we what if we became specialists in in a new x for y a new discipline for market so if the firm's been around a little while usually usually the positioning a, a repositioning will have them narrowing one of those things 
sometimes two. Usually one can be narrow, the other can be broad. And then there's a series of questions as you try on X for Y. There's a series of questions that you would ask. Um, you can go out and test it in the market in various ways, but you start asking questions about, well, who else is doing this? How, how big is the market? Um, can I see us being able to command a premium price for this? Now, notice what I'm not exploring here other than in the very first exercise where you just kind of get a benchmark of where are you now. You don't, when it comes to repositioning your firm, you can be anything you want to be in three or four years. And there's some math around that, that around how, how many clients you should have and how quickly you should turn over your clients. And I'll skip the math and I'll just tell you that the average creative firm should turn over their entire client base on average in three to four years. So imagine that you develop a strategic vision for the firm, how you want to be become a specialized expert in X for Y at a certain period of time in the future. And if you pick three or four years, <clears throat> what I'm saying to you is you can be anything you want in three to four years, but you, you have, first you need the vision of where you're going. And then you need to see every new client that you take on from this moment until the moment the vision is realized. You need to see every new client is a step toward that vision or a step away from it. Mm. And what happens is you might come up with a vision and then you'll make a compromise in your very next client. You'll take somebody where they don't see you as an expert. They're not paying you as a premium. This engagement is not going to take you closer to your goals. So Touché. it starts with having a vision and then, and then you, you, as I'm fond of saying, you reinvent your firm one new client at a time. And you just imagine mm. that there's a three or four year period where you're going to turn everybody over. And in three to four years, you will be the sum of your expertise will essentially be the sum of all of the engagements that you said yes to. Mm. Love it. Therefore you need to be discerning. I guess when you, when you tell agencies that one of the, I wouldn't say objections, but worries probably is cash flow. Uh, I have this staff and we're not well positioned. I need to take whatever I can. What, what would you tell agencies in that position? Well, I'll, I'll quote my friend and podcast co-host David C. Baker um, in an article he wrote many, many years ago where he said most most cash flow problems are profitability problems. Mm -hmm. So when I hear somebody talk about cash flow, you know, I've, um, I immediately think back to that article that David wrote, and I think, yeah, you probably don't have a ca cash flow. Problems are by their nature they're temporary, right? But it's not a cash flow problem; it's a profitability problem. Why are you not profitable? Because you're not. The world doesn't need what you do. Uh, in the harshest terms, and that's and in many like everybody, people are th sitting there thinking, <laughs> "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and and I, I I am I am being harsh. If if you have recurring profit problems, it may be that the world just does not need another firm like yours. Mm -hmm. And I don't I w I don't want anybody to lose heart over that because if you if you have been in business for a few years, even if you're barely profitable, you probably have some validation that you're, you have the skills to build a profitable business. Mm. 
you just haven't shaped the container of that business. So, so, but back to your question, what do you like repositioning a firm, especially a small firm of like like under 30 people, um, maybe even, you know, repositioning a firm does not take, does not necessarily require, it doesn't require cash. Um, and positioning again, I'm quoting David Baker again. So I know David well, and we, so I'm always dropping a lot of his gems. Yeah. Positioning is about the work that you you pursue. It's not about the work that you do. It's mm-hmm. about the message that you send out to the world. We are specialists in, we are exclusively focused on, et cetera. We solve these types of problems for these types of organizations. And those there those outside of your market, your your why, your market, who will see relevance in what you do. And even as you go to the market with with a specialist focus, you're going to get people way outside of your market who will come to you and say, "Well, do you do do you do branding or do you do you know more general mm. um, type of work that all most design firms, most creative firms do?" And you're you're still free to take that work. <clears throat> what you should do, so especially in the transition period, if you need the cash, you're, of course you're free to take that work. What you wouldn't do is you wouldn't you wouldn't put that work on your website, your portfolio. Um, you wouldn't broaden out your positioning language to now include other clients like the oddball that you just took. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, pricing there, and we talked about cash flow and profitability, and and that's the if I'm just trying to segue into your your new book, pricing creativity. Um, what what did you write a second book, and and what's the what's the red thread throughout that book? Yeah. Thanks. So Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour came out in January of 2018. Um, so it's approaching a year old. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a book that's quite different. In so many ways, it's quite different from the manifesto. The manifesto, I view the manifesto as the yes, you can book. When you, when you finish it, you can read it in a little over two hours. And my, my idea is you finish that book, you put it down, you are inspired to see a new way of doing business and to believe that you can do it. Um, pricing creativity is more of a here's how to book. In fact, it looks like a manual. It's, it's mm. written as a, the hard copy is a manual. There's an ebook version. There's a video based one. There's, um, there's multiple versions at multiple price points. It's the first pricing book in the world that's priced based on the principles in the book. You just stole my point. I just, <laughs> that was great that you said that because that was my first feeling because I, I had the download version and I was like, wow, that's a hundred bucks. And I thought that's, that's perfect <laughs> because I actually, I don't have a problem with that because I, I got, you know, I was so happy with the value of the first book and I thought, yeah, he's eating his own cookie clearly. So that's, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I somebody said to me on Twitter yesterday, your pricing book um is underpriced based on the value that you get from it. <laughs> but if it were more expensive, I wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> so I think that's a that's a sign that you've priced something accurately. Um so I wrote that book in January and I mentioned it's it's different on many levels. When I wrote The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, nobody I so we're in the sales training business for creative professionals. We use the S word sales, even though it's a, it's abhorred in uh, mm. uh, our target market does not like that word. 
And I can't help it. We teach people to lean into the dark places, to lean into the uncomfortable things. So I lean into that S word and I am determined that by the time I am done with our clients, they will embrace the S word too. We don't like the, we don't like the word sales because we misunderstand what it is to do sales properly. We think it is talking people into things rather than helping people. So we, we convert people on that point of view. Mm. But when I wrote that book, I, I did no research on it other than the work that I had done as a consultant. You do not have to read the canon of literature on sales to become a good salesperson, you simply have to draw upon your experiences as being horrified, being a horrified buyer, um, having a um, a poorly trained or poorly incentivized salesperson try to talk you into something so that their children could eat. Um, we just we, we so I there was no research required for I I avoid literature on and books on selling. I just can't bring myself to read them. But when it came to pricing, I had a few incidents where that caused me to realize that I didn't know anything about the subjects of pricing or value or or pricing based on value. So I decided to read some books and learn what I did not know. And I'm a voracious reader. So I've I mean on my desk right here I have one I have eight books on well six books on pricing just sitting on my desk and then I've got a so I own pretty much every book on pricing. I decided I was I was just going to learn everything I didn't know. I thought I could do it in two or three books. Then I realized this is a massive field. This The subject of pricing is as big as the field of human judgment and decision-making. It's a massive field. It goes into behavioral mm-hmm. economics. It goes into psychology. It's massive. And I became fascinated by it. So I quickly, I, I slowly over a few years learned what I didn't know. And then... <clears throat> started applying what I was learning to my clients' businesses in the training program. And a friend suggested I should write a book on pricing. And I said, well, I, the world doesn't need another book on pricing. There are lots of great books on pricing. And he said, yeah, but your clients aren't going to read those books. Mm-hmm. And I realized he was right. So I wrote Pricing Creativity for the creative professional because I imagined they didn't want all the theory that I I geek out on pricing theory. So I have all the textbooks, et cetera. They don't want that. They want the theory distilled to the smallest number of principles that they need to know. So that's the first yeah. section of the book, principles. And then they want the rules. What do I always have to, what are the few things I should always do? So that's the second section of the book, the rules. And then the third section is tips, specific situation specific guidance for specific situations. How do you handle retainers? How do you craft the middle option in your three option proposal? Um, uh, some advice on negotiating, et cetera. And then the last section is, is, uh, tools, uh, uh, bench, um, uh, templates, um, et cetera, other things that you can reference. So that's, uh, so it's quite different from the manifesto. And if you look at the two books, one's really how to, and one's yes, you can. Yeah. And what are your, like, can you, maybe you could share some principle for, for, like, what is the most common piece of advice that creative professionals need to learn about pricing? Like, something from your principles, maybe. Yeah. So, I'll, let me give you the first three rules. There are six rules in the book. And if you just follow the first three rules, I believe the average creative firm can increase their profit by 50%. And I actually think that's a low number. And I've seen, I've, the feedback I've received over the past year has been really phenomenal in terms of the amount of value that's been created 
Wow. Um, so got to lean so, in on this one. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I, say, I say if you go to pricingcreativity.com, that's the only place you can buy the book. I, I think I say there that my goal is to create $100 million a year in new profit among the creative among the uh, creative firms. And, I, and I, I do the rough math, and I think we're, like, we're well on the way to doing that. So, and I get stories every week from people sharing how much more money they've earned. I got the, the best email I got last week was somebody said, um, we can attribute $590,000 US dollars, plus it was a more specific numbers, like right down to the dollar, <clears throat> of money that we earned that we wouldn't, of, above the client's stated budget. So from mm. reading the book, it was also a firm that I spent a day doing uh, training with <clears throat> earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was also a firm I did spent doing training with earlier in the year. Um, so since then, they've attributed almost $600,000 in increased revenue based at, wow. ab- above what their clients yeah. said, well, here's our budget. That does really make that book seem cheap. <laughs> I agree it, now. <laughs> it does. I I think... Yeah. So, and I talk about this on the website. So the three rules, just follow these three rules and the average creative firm should be able to increase their profit by 50%, which the equivalent of 50% profit increase in the average creative firm just means a 10% price increase across the board. Hmm. But it, you can't just increase your prices by 10%. Some clients will take it, some won't. So you have to change how you price. Follow these three rules. Number one, price the client, not the job. What that means is when the client says, what do you charge for X? You don't have an answer because Mm -hmm. the real answer is, well, that depends. And it doesn't depend on how good your work is. It doesn't depend on how much time it takes you to do it. It depends on the value of X to the client. So the first rule is just let go of this idea that you have a specific price or a specific price range for whatever it is that you do. So identity work, you might think, well, we charge 10 grand or 100 grand or 1,000 euro, whatever it is. <clears throat> Just, or, or even a range, we typically charge 20 to 40. Just let go of that completely and, just, yeah. and, and don't, get, don't, don't rush into something where you're mentally or even kind of verbally filling in the blanks for the client about, oh, we usually charge this much. Just, just hold off on that and reserve the right to charge different clients different amounts of money because for essentially the same thing be, because you were creating different amounts of value. And so there's some unpacking of that idea that needs yeah. to take place, and I do it in the book. But that's rule number one. Rule number two is always offer options. When you put forward a proposal to your clients, never again in your career should should you ever put forward a proposal that just has one one solution and one price. Hmm, should almost that? should almost always be three. So I'll generalize and say three options. Um, three is better than two. Four works as well. Once you get beyond four options, you start to introduce. Uh, the paradox of choice, people become paralyzed. You're giving them too much choice. So the reason you want to offer options is um, is that uh, we have to appreciate the subjectivity of value and the fact that human beings cannot objectively perceive 
absolute values. And what I mean, I prove this in the book. Let me get to this as quickly as I can. It, life is subjective. We think, and the older I get, the more I realize I'm not even convinced there is a real objective external reality. So, okay, that's as metaphysical as I'll get. What I mean it's is matrix stuff. It, yeah, everything in your life is subjective. Now, when you're yeah. when you put forward a proposal to your client and say, it says, "Here's my solution, and here's my price. My price is fifty thousand dollars or five thousand dollars." Your client does not have the ability to look at your solution. And look at your price and say, yes, that solution is worth that price. They cannot do that. I mean, they can do it, but the only way they can do it is by making a comparison. And I prove this in the book through a visual image from a cognitive scientist. I prove that I can make you think black is white. I can make you think wet is dry. I can make you think cold is hot, heavy is light, bright is dim. I can make you think all of those things if you let me control the comparisons. So your job as a salesperson is to control the comparisons. When you put forward a proposal <clears throat> with one solution and one price, your client cannot determine if that solution is worth that price until they make a comparison. So what do they do? They leave. Either mentally or physically, you force your client to leave and go and get something against which to compare your proposal. So it might be a proposal from another provider, a competitor. Mm. It might be to go back and think, well, what did we spend with you before, et cetera. The client needs to make a comparison for them to make a decision. So your job is to control the comparison. And the reason you want to put forward three options instead of two is you want to leverage this principle that's known as extremeness aversion, where when presented with choice, we tend to mm. avoid the extremes and head towards the middle. So you put forward your three options knowing that the client is likely to end up in the middle. So rule number that's one. That's what's happened right? most of the time? It, like statistically, is that what happened? Yeah. Happens, yeah. 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 So wow. rule number one, price the client, not the job. Let go or not the service. Let go of the idea of that you have these set prices for anything, even set ranges. Rule number two, always offer options. The client needs to make a comparison so you control the comparison. Rule number three, anchor high. Anchor high, what I mean by that is when you deliver your proposal, you begin with the highest price option. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how high the price of that option is because the job of the anchor price is not to sell the anchor option. The job of the anchor price is to make the other prices look affordable in comparison. And there's right. all kinds of research around the subject of or the science of anchoring. It sometimes goes by the term um, the anchoring effect or sometimes anchoring and adjusting. Dan Kahneman, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. um, has pioneered this along with his research partner, Amos Tversky. Um, they pioneered this the initial studies in anchoring and there's been a lot of work done on it since. And one of the interesting things about an anchor is there's no boomerang effect. It doesn't matter how high the anchor price is. It is going to have a positive effect on the ultimate price selected by clients on average. And I'll give you an hmm. example of that. I have a friend who one of his, his first story of his first journey, first 
yeah, the, his first journey to value-based pricing is in the book. He's a solo consultant. And he had a client who had a budget of $30,000. And he closed the client on a solution that cost $300,000. So wow. the client said, my budget is X, and he sold them a solution that was 10X. <laughs> but his anchor price, he started with the anchor option, and the anchor option was priced at 30 million dollars <laughs> just to let that sink in so a client says to you my budget is x and you say okay i've got three different ways i can help let me begin with the most elaborate one you'd better hold on to your hat because it's priced at 1000 times your budget and the client can't even hear what you say for the next 15 seconds because all they can hear is their heart pounding in their ears right <laughs> Um, and there's, y you might think, well, that's outrageous. And, um, without knowing too much about the details of this proposal, I can tell you that my friend would not have put forward a $30 million solution unless he was convinced it would generate far in excess of $30 million in value. So he probably th saw an opportunity to create around $100 million in value. Right. And so he leads with an elaborate solution. And what the elaborate solution is doing, uh, beyond just anchoring the, the mm. price to a high number, what it's doing is it's forcing the client to think bigger about his solution, to move past this idea of I need to procure X from this consultant to the, to the more loftier idea of I need to create $100 million in value. So that's part of what you're trying to do with value-based pricing is you're trying to you're trying to reorient your organization to be more focused on value creation. And mm. as a result, you'll charge more. The goal of value-based pricing isn't to charge more. It's to, it's to create an organization that's intently focused on creating extraordinary client value. And when you start thinking that way and you follow these three rules, your prices are going to go way up. Right. So what happens when, uh, I know you're not a fan of pitching, and that's, the, of course, the title of the first book and, uh, and RFPs and all that, but like, what happens when, let's say, a client says, well, we have to have three bids for this, and you know, whether it's driven through SAP or some, you know, some system or rules that they have. When you have these three different levels, and then you have competitors there, like, what's the effect of having maybe three other companies bidding as well? Uh, what's your take on that? Does that affect the psychology? Yeah, so if we go back to kind of win without pitching rather than just purely pricing, but that's the idea of how do you conduct yourself in the sale. So your first, I, we talk about the four priorities. Priority number one is wherever possible you win without pitching before it gets to a scenario like you just described. If, that, if you can't do that, priority number two is to try to derail the pitch. So a client says, well, we have this procurement process we have to follow. You try to get them to put that aside and take an alternative step with you. And if you have power in the buy-sell relationship, if you're seen as meaningfully different, if you've built a specialized expert practice, then you might be able to do this. But right. if you can't yeah. do it, maybe the procurement process is highly entrenched. If you can't do it, your third priority is to try to gain the advantage. Your assumption mm. should be that in every competitive situation, there is a firm that has an advantage. They have inside information, the outcome is predetermined, whatever it is. So we teach you to do some things to try to gain that advantage. And if you get some behavioral indications that you have that advantage, 
So, I mean, beyond what, beyond their words, if people, if the client grants you concessions that they do not grant to other firms, that's an invitation to proceed because I can prove statistically that in a situation like that, if you can get the if you can get some concessions granted to you, you're more likely to win than you are to lose. I've done a little bit of research on it. It's yeah. actually quite compelling. Um, and then the fourth priority is if you can't affect it at all, walk away. You're, you should assume that somebody else has the advantage and you're not likely to win anyway. And I can, I can prove that with some research as well. Um, not absolutely. I can prove that you're not likely to win. Right. So, so in a scenario like that, first I would have you do a whole bunch of things to try to gain some sort of con concession to determine whether or not you had the advantage and you were likely to win or not. And if you, if you had some achieved some concession and it was, it became clear that you were more likely to win than lose, then you would go ahead and perhaps depends on the situation and, and submit your proposal and go ahead and submit three bids. Like if, if they're putting it out to three firms and you're one of three, instead of three, three options coming back, there's going to be five, three from you, and one each from the other two. So even mm. from that point of view, it makes sense to to always to have the right put forward options. Fantastic. I'm I've made so many notes here. I think I'm I'm I, I got so much new learning here. Uh and I, I can help to think that all the, the listeners are feeling the same way. So before I ask my final question, uh how can people get on, you know, how can they learn more besides obviously buying the books, Pricing Creativity, and a Win Without Pitching Manifesto. What else can they do? You have programs as well that you can enroll. Yes. So the, uh, we run training programs the next that start three times a year. So they're remote training programs that are delivered. We put you into... Uh, well, there's, there are many different ways we deliver training programs. We can do it remotely over a period of weeks, or we can do it on site in in your offices and we do public workshops from time to time. So you can get information on all of that at winwithoutpitching.com. If um, the win without pitching manifesto is available on Amazon and pricing creativity is only available at pricingcreativity.com. And I'm uh, Blair ends on Twitter. Great. And that's with two ends, of course. Yes. Fantastic. Well, um, final question. Since this podcast is called Extraordinary, and uh, I always trying to give people advice and, and create value around how they can both differentiate and get ahead in life, what is uh, the one thing that you can think of that has helped you the most, like an idea or revelation or breakthrough that has, has been sort of profound in your life, in your development of your career? Uh, really, man, if you ask me that question on any given day, I would give you any number of different answers. I'm so I'm so heavily influenced by and grateful to so many different people, some of whom I've met and some I've just listened to or read their books. So I really don't I don't know where to begin. I'll give you I'll give you two. So the first one so if, maybe I, it's if I think of my own Yeah. Yeah, maybe it is, yeah. <laughs> um if I if I think of my own success, I can chalk it up to multiple things including timing and luck like you cannot discount that um but i would say i look back with um with um satisfaction at how i have largely resisted 
the urge to expand my focus. I have stayed focused. And for, mm. over many years, as the more successful the books have become, the more I've had people say to me, you know, you really should branch out into these other areas. And I do have, I, I, I am a partner in a consulting company that's in another part of the world that's, that takes some of these principles into the professional services market. And that's a bit of an experiment. But for, for the most part, Win Without Pitching has stayed focused on the creative professionals, even though you know, we have clients that are not in the creative space. So I've, we've stayed focused there. People would say to me, the principles you espouse apply to so many other businesses. And I think, yeah, they do. But as soon as I start chasing them, I invite all of these other competitors. And if there's one thing that I know, it's not, I don't know selling better than other people. I don't know pricing better than other people. I know the creative person. I know the peculiarities of the creative mind and personality that make selling and pricing difficult. So I would say once you find your niche, like don't get bored, don't like stay mm. focused on it. As long as it's large enough, stay focused on that and resist. As soon as you start to broaden out, you really water everything down and you invite all kinds of competition. So it and sounds then, a bit like, like number one in uh, the first proclamation <laughs> when without yeah. specialize in folks, right? Yeah. Sorry, you were going to... And just this yeah. second piece of advice is something a lawyer said to me many years ago. Never break more than one law at a time. <laughs> if you've got a body in the trunk of the car, don't speed. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Blair. This has been a privilege. And uh, everyone, I, you should definitely go and, and check out both books and, and take it from there. I mean, it's, there's so much value there. A hundred bucks for that book is nothing. <laughs> You yeah, should raise the price. It's fully guaranteed. It's you could buy the three hundred and twenty dollar version, and all the prices are fully guaranteed. If you don't make money, you don't like it, whatever you want, just we'll send you your money back. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, great. Thanks, Thank you Tobias. so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it.